Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There's been some debate about who the first known modern serial killer is. Whether you think it's Jack the Ripper, Lydia Sherman, or the entire Kelly family, what's undeniable is how serial killers have been around a lot longer than we think. One of the earliest was said to be a comrade in arms of Joan of Arc and an outstanding soldier, Gilles de Ray. However, was Gilles really the monster that he's made out to be? Or did he, like Elizabeth Bathory, fall victim to a warped and unjust system? Hello everyone, and welcome back to Prism of the Past. Today, we're going to be talking about the notorious historical serial killer, Gilles de Ray. Considering the topic at hand, it goes without saying that there will be mentions of violent sexual assault and murdered. And a lot of it, by the way, is gonna be against children. So if you find these topics upsetting or you're not in the headspace to listen to them, this will not be the episode for you. For those of you still here, let's get right into it and start with who Gilles de Ray is and how he became arguably one of the first serial killers in recorded history. And I think this goes without saying, but I do speak English and Polish and they are not compatible languages with French. And I have a lot of trouble pronouncing French names as you've probably recognized from previous episodes. So I will be trying my best, but for some reason, French words just can't come out of my mouth properly. So I'm going to do my best, but this is your heads up that I'm probably gonna mispronounce a few French words. So let's get into it. Gilles de Laval, Lord of Rye, was born in 1404 in Chamteau's castle in Anjou, France. His parents were both heirs to wealthy land holdings, the Lordship of Ray and part of the Laval family possessions. Considering that his parents passed away in 1415, he also inherited their wealth at an early age. His father died in a hunting accident, whereas his mother died of an unknown cause. Some sources claim that a few historians believe she left the family and remarried, but it's only speculation. Other theories claim that Gilles' father left instructions that his children should be raised by his cousin named Jean. Apparently, he didn't trust Gilles' maternal grandfather, Jean de Caun, and the man that had snatched up the property from right under his nose before, so he didn't want it happening post-death. He was little better than a bandit, selfish, and so Guy, understandably, didn't want his sons to be raised by this kind of influence. However, once Guy de Ray passed away, well, his desires were ignored and Jean raised him all the same. One of my sources claims, during his younger days with his grandfather, he was imparted by Jean with the impression that their family was above the law. If they wanted something, they got it. And if anyone caused trouble, they brought themselves out. This attitude would play a part in Jill's thinking later on when he ran amok, killing children with abandon. Jean leaves his grandson free in his own manner to do all evil he pleases. If the grandfather intervenes, it is to set an example. He instructs him to feel above the law. Jean, on the other hand, allowed more time for young Gilles to be taught as a knight, preparing him to fight in the Hundred Years' War. Many of my sources make little mention of this, so feel free to take it with a grain of salt. Even if this is taken from a book about Gilles, I'm sure there's plenty of other, you know, ways that this could have been twisted throughout history, manipulated, or presented in a way that favors one party over the other. This could explain a lot about his upbringing, but it's hard to say for sure if it happened in this way or if this is just how it's being presented. 
For example, we do know that Gilles married Catherine de Tours, another wealthy family by 1420. So by this time, when he was about 16 years old, he was already one of the richest men in Europe. However, the way in which he married her is up for debate. Some say he was supposed to marry Jean Paynel, a wealthy young orphan who was supposedly only four years old at the time. Thankfully, the parliament in France forbade it until she became of age. But Jean did not want to wait so long. So instead he ordered Jill to kidnap his own cousin and she was compelled to marry him. Others say he kidnapped Catherine, but make no mention of the other four-year-old girl, whereas others simply say he married Catherine and had no intention when there was no kidnapping and wasn't gonna marry the four-year-old. It's very mucky. It's very uncertain is the real answer here. There's many variations. Is mucky a word? I don't think that's a word. I think I just made that up. Anyway, one book on Gutenberg's website has yet another different account and says, in 1417, when Gilles was but a 13 year old, he was engaged by his grandfather to Joan Paynell, the daughter of Fulk Paynell, but the contract was voided by her death. In November, 1418, the grandfather made for him a second contract of marriage, this time with Beatrice de Rohan, an eldest daughter of Alain de Porrois. The contract was signed at Vannes with great ceremony and in the presence of an illustrious throng of Breton nobles. But this contract came to an end as did the former by the unfortunate death of the young lady. This double failure did not, however, discourage the doting grandfather. He immediately proceeded with his arrangements for a third contract, this time with Catherine de Tours, the daughter of Mills de Tours and Beatrice de Morgan. And this marriage was celebrated on the last day of November, 1420. Needless to say, getting to the bottom of things proved extremely tricky for this. What we do know is that later on, by the time Gilles was in his twenties, he was assigned to watch over Joan of Arc in battle. He fought by her side on numerous occasions, including the relief of Orleans in 1429. And he accompanied her to the city of Reims for the consecration of Charles VII. It's even said that Gilles became a favorite of Charles VII too. Seriously, he had some major connections. It's said that because of Joan of Arc's death in 1431, Gilles lost it and turned to hearsay, alchemy, and murder. So let's start exploring when Gilles' dark side began and what people have said about the disturbing acts he took part in. And as content warning, things are going to get a lot more graphic and disturbing from this point on, so please proceed with caution. As a matter of fact, as the final last ditch, like I'm warning you, I'm placing the ad sponsors right here. And then afterwards, if you're still listening, it's gonna get dark, spooky, creepy, all of the above. So if you're still here and you didn't wanna be here, this is your own fault now. Let's go to the sponsors. The end of the year is quickly approaching and a lot of us are starting to think about what we can do in the next year in 2022 to make our lives a little easier, better, and safer. One of those things you probably should consider is stop giving away free information to your internet service provider. Every time you go online without using ExpressVPN, your provider like AT&T, Comcast, CenturyLink, whoever, they can see everything you do. And yes, that includes anything that you visit while in cognito mode as well. On top of overcharging you, they are legally allowed to sell all of your browsing activity to third-party advertisers for massive profits. And that's why I'm using ExpressVPN. Simply fire up ExpressVPN on any of your devices, phones, laptops, whatever, and with one button to connect, and then it does its thing in the background, and that's one of the best things about it. You set it up, let it run, and it does its thing. So you've given your ISP enough this year, and it's time to start doing some taking. So take back your internet privacy today with the VPN rated number one by TechRadar and Mashable. Visit expressvpn.com prism and get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash prism. 
expressvpn.com slash prism to learn more. And again, in theme with that end of the year, new year coming up, it's time to start thinking about what you're doing to feed your body, to make yourself feel good. I know the beginning of the year is when a lot of people like to do diets, the whole new me, new year kind of shenanigans, and you can give yourself a little step up with the help from HelloFresh. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every single week, including vegetarian, calorie smart, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety for whatever your caloric needs are. Ingredients travel from the farm to your door within a week, so you get the convenience without skimping on the quality. Plus, skip trips to the grocery store and avoid all of those crazy lines. HelloFresh meals are quick and easy. Most are ready in about 30 minutes, but they even have some quick and easy meals, 20 minute recipes, and low prep or easy cleanup options to help you get food on the table quicker. So if you wanna get started with HelloFresh, make sure you go to hellofresh.com prism14 and use code prism14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. Again, go to hellofresh.com prism14 and use code prism14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. Apparently, shortly after Joan's death, Gilles returned home and squandered his riches, spending them on extravagant parties. Some say that he started invoking demons to gain more riches and rumors began spreading that he was involved for darker acts than just alchemy, but torture and murder. One source claimed that he heavily invested in alchemy in an attempt to turn metals into gold to regain his wealth. He invited many alchemists and sorcerers into his home in an attempt to do this, but none were successful. There was one Italian sorcerer that apparently told Gilles that if he wanted Satan's help, he would need to start making sacrifices. And this is when he first committed murder by luring a young peasant boy into his castle and killing him. It didn't work obviously, and he hadn't created gold or summoned Satan, but he developed an appetite for murder all the same. Others say that it wasn't Joan's death, but his grandfather's that seemed to drive him towards lashing out and attacking others. According to this source, bored with civilian life and freed from the tyranny of his grandfather after the old man's death in 1432, de began experimenting with the occult. An extremely pretty boy known as the Poitou was taken to his castle at Machuol and raped by Dira. Just as the boy was about to be killed, a servant suggested keeping him as a page and Dira agreed. Poitois became one of his most devoted acolytes. This account also claims that he would hang boys on hooks, rape them, then have a servant decapitate them. Gilles apparently abused the headless corpse, cut open the stomach, pulled open the entrails and masturbate all over the body afterward. When he was finished and went to bed, his servants would cremate the corpse in the oven. Allegedly, hundreds of children were tortured and killed this way. Some say he was sacrificing the children to a demon. Britannica states it was over 140 children that he killed, while others make it a point to say that he would stare the children deeply in the eyes as they died. Original court documents even state that he had a macabre collection of heads on display, and he would ask members of his court which ones they thought were the most beautiful. The accusations levied against him are some of the most grotesque things you'll even hear. I'll spare you some of the disturbing details, but use your imagination. Between 1432 and 1440, Gilles de Ray and his servants committed these heinous acts under their parents' noses. Parents who believed their songs were training to be knights or choir boys. In 1440, the rumors about boys going missing near Gilles de Ray's castle came to a head and the church stepped in to conduct an investigation. Others say the investigation really began after the disappearance of a clergyman named Jean de Ferron. Gilles had allegedly gotten into a dispute with this clergyman and kidnapped him in May, 1440. So the church got involved because he kidnapped a clergyman, cause that's a no-no, but murdering children, 
that one's okay, I guess. It does strike me as odd that they didn't notice for so long, but we'll get to the suspicions and inconsistencies later. Anyways, once he was investigated, he and his cohorts were arrested in September, 1440. A relatively short trial took place afterwards. Witnesses were apparently too intimidated to come forward since Gilles had been such a powerful figure in France, but one did admit to seeing skeletons carried away from his towers. Though many accounts of these deaths are not told, there are a few of them that circulate. And many of the stories are from parents of young children. With no short of testimony against Gilles de Rye, his case looked black and white, open and shut. Old trial documents seem to verify as much, stating that he boasted about his crimes and willingly confessed to murdering and sexually abusing children. He also confessed to having evoked evil spirits, being a heretic, a sorcerer, a sodomite, everything he was accused of. While some say he was a full-blown Satanist, others point to his words at the end of the trial. Apparently he told the court that, quote, as a Christian, he was their brother and urging them and those among them whose children he had killed for the love of our Lord's suffering to be willing to pray to God for him and to forgive him freely, end quote. Sure doesn't sound like the words of a Satanist, but you know, maybe he was just putting on an act. He allegedly said the evil inside of him came from being born under a certain constellation. Some theories say he had a mental illness, but generally speaking, his motives are not clear. After all, he wasn't able to get gold or summon Satan to make him wealthy, so why keep killing? Did he actually enjoy it? Or was there more to the picture here that we don't understand? While many reports say he killed at least 140, others say the number could have been as high as 800. Given his confession and the heinous acts he committed, he was obviously found guilty, and one month after the trial began, he was sentenced to death by hanging, followed by a burning. He was executed around the end of October, whereas the Italian sorcerer and other cohorts only served a few months in prison for their part in the crimes. However, as straightforward as this case might seem, those of you who've seen my episode on Elizabeth Bathory know that in a time where torture was a means of interrogation and testimony could be based entirely on rumors, this isn't actually an open and shut case. In fact, quite a few things may have compromised Jill's trial and cast doubt about his guilt. Let's take a look at the evidence that was levied against him. Poitou, the boy that became Gilles de Rye's page, was a massive witness for the prosecution. He ultimately decided to make a full confession to avoid torture, which justifiably led to speculation that his confession was coerced. Even though he confirmed what we've already heard about Gilles' depraved acts, if it's a forced confession, then is there really any validity to it? Henry Griard, who seems to have been Gilles' librarian and who some speculate was in a relationship with the boy, also confessed to these events under potential threat of torture. So now was the boy even assaulted when he arrived at Gilles' castle at all? There are quite a few holes in the story when you look closer because the boy was apparently 10 years old in 1427 or so. And when Gilles confessed to his crimes, he said that it began when his grandfather died in 1432. So if Poitou had been threatened as a young boy at the age of 10, then it would have been before 1432. Poitou also claimed to have been raped and threatened by Gilles when he was about 20 or so after he saw dead children in the castle, which would have been a few years after the crimes began. One website that advocates for Gilles' innocence says that the judges let this slide and that biographers such as Jean Benedetti, who wrote a biography about Gilles in the 70s, says that Poitou may have confused or conflated the two events. Still, this doesn't really seem all that likely as one event was when he was 10, another 20. And some say that this man probably didn't confuse or misplace such a traumatic event by an entire decade. It makes more sense that he was tortured or threatened at that time period. I'm not saying it's impossible that he conflated the two, but we can really only speculate. The librarian and other key witnesses for the prosecution also apparently gave graphic details about the torture and murder of the kidnapped children. Testimony said that he was a servant of Gilles and that he had discovered decapitated heads in trunks. 
and he had even been responsible for delivering many of the children that were killed to Gilles himself. Prilati, the sorcerer we mentioned earlier, also took the stand to talk about Gilles' interest in demons and how he killed for the purpose of summoning them. He even admitted that he took part in these ceremonies, making it all the more surprising that these other conspirators were only given a few months in prison. So the question remains, did torture take place in this case? Do we have any evidence to prove that this was fabricated? It's truthfully difficult to say. A lot of my sources continue to say multiple different things. The book Bluebeard, written by Thomas Wilson in 2019, alleges that Gilles was so terrified of torture, he threw himself at the mercy of the court and confessed. For generations, Europeans thought this to the point where a horrific legend was supposedly built around Gilles himself, the legend of Bluebeard. Charles Perrault's collection of fairy tales from 1697, The Tales of Mother Goose, has a story in it called Le Barbe Blue, also known as Bluebeard. In this tale, Bluebeard is a wealthy man who forbade his wife from opening any doors in his castle. When she disobeys, she finds a body, one of Bluebeard's former wives. When Bluebeard learns of her disobedience, he threatens to cut off her head, though his wife is saved by her brothers in the nick of time. It's said that Gilles de Ray, as well as a sixth century Breton chief, Comord the Cursed, likely inspired the story. Bluebeard has circulated throughout Europe, Africa, and Eastern folklore. Though this doesn't mean that this story is definitively about Gilles, it's as if it sounds like the story of a murderous husband in general, the idea and legends about Gilles have taken off and that becomes the fairy tale. He's even been immortalized in the anime Fate Zero, where he's a despicable child murderer who takes the name of Bluebeard. However, we have one perspective right now, and that's those who have written and studied the text of Gilles' trial. Now let's take a look at a different perspective and see if we can find any definitive proof of his guilt or innocence. In 1992, over 500 years after he was executed, the quest to discover the truth and exonerate Gilles de Ray began. It began when the Breton Tourist Board commissioned a Gilles de Ray biography from French author Gilbert Proteau. Instead of him writing a book that would give tourists a peek behind the old crime scenes of Gilles de Ray's castle, he learned that he might be innocent and called for a retrial. The Court of Cassation, the highest court of appeals in France, fully exonerated Gilles de Ray the same year. And we'll get into the exoneration a bit more in just a moment. In fact, attempts to clear his name go back as far as 1443, though those clearly didn't get the traction. People that consider him innocent are few and far between, and the literal hundreds of books about him rarely seem to point out the extremely suspicious circumstances around the trial. Plus, those who have considered his innocence are almost always French, so it's even harder to get that message across the pond. So why was Gilles potentially set up? First and foremost, he fought fiercely alongside Joan of Arc. Though today she's well-respected and seen as a hero, let's not forget that she was literally burned at the stake and labeled as a heretic, fraud, and sorceress. Gilles' association with her didn't look good for him. Secondly, Gilles was throwing money down the drain for parties. And I mean, that's fine, it's his money, but church officials wanted his money. And by the way, who do you think got all the money after he died, by the way? The bishops coveted his castle and land, and they clearly had a motive for seeing him hang. In 1992, the New York Times wrote, Michael Kripal, a former justice minister, said Gilles de Ray was tried for sorcery when the trial's true motivation was political. If he had been tried under common law, all other warriors of that time or even later should have also been brought to trial, he added, reminding the court that Joan of Arc was herself tried and executed for witchcraft. With some 200 books already dedicated to Gilles de Ray, Michael Fleury, an amateur historian, said that it would be virtually impossible to determine the truth about the man. Let's try to come up with something approaching the truth rather than pretending we know the truth, he said. Does this mean that Gilles is innocent without a doubt? Well, it means that he certainly didn't get a fair trial at the very least. 
Author of the Gilles de Ray Was Innocent blog, Margot Kekjubi, spent years deciphering the story. She calls herself Gilles de Ray's representative on earth and has posted links to original documents in English and in France, explaining how each myth began to pass for fact. She has made the consistent point that there is no physical evidence whatsoever and Gilles was convicted on testimony alone. She continues to post on the blog frequently, even claiming that Gilles de Ray was never meant to be completely estranged from the Bluebeard myth, explaining that the conflation is due to the fault of one writer, Abby Bossard, who only used speculation to connect the two and no sources whatsoever. One of his only sources was apparently an old woman whose testimony he trusted, when this case proves, if anything, anecdotal evidence should not be enough. Juby also clears up misconceptions that Jill violated the decapitated heads of his victims was never even mentioned in the trial records. Even what he was accused with has been warped over time. Now, I'm sure you probably still have many questions because I sure did at this point. What about these children that were going missing and why would anyone go through this trouble to frame him? Well, thankfully, Juby actually answers this too. And according to her, there is no evidence to indicate that more children might be expected when missing in his vicinity. The country was in a state of upheaval with bands of soldiers living off the land. And the years when Jill was supposedly pursuing his murderous career, there was kind of a mini ice age with long and bitter winters. The attrition rate would have been high, especially among homeless beggars. Around 40 children over eight years in a wide area would not have been alarming or unusual number. A close examination of the evidence shows that children were going missing from areas he had no reason to visit. So the random children that would missing, especially the ones that don't even mention any sort of connection to his servants, that would have made sense at the time. It might be unpleasant, but it doesn't make it sinister. In her blog, as well as in interviews, Juby addresses how the confessions themselves are also riddled with a ton of inconsistencies. It's not even possible to determine what form of sexual assault is described. The only eyewitnesses contradict themselves constantly, and it would have been impossible at that time to burn all the bodies completely to ash. And as intense and horrible as the accusations may be, they all boil down to this, sodomy, child abduction, murder, and dealings with the devil. The same crimes that all outsiders were charged with to be demonized by the public. With all this evidence, all the valid speculation and abysmal trial, historian Gilbert Protru spearheaded the unofficial mistrial that finally acquitted Childeray almost two decades ago. Between him and Juby's evidence, explanations, and news sources that advocate for Jill's innocence, I truly believe that the Duchy of Brittany unjustly hung him and that Jill de Rey wasn't guilty. His case feels eerily similar to Elizabeth Bathory, and I think they've both gone down in history as brutal serial killers without cause. Of course, that's my personal opinion and my takeaway. I would love to obviously hear yours as well. Now, although this is where I was originally going to end this episode, we actually reached out to Margot Juby with just a few more questions, and I thought you guys might find this interesting. Here's that email interview. Though I had to summarize her answers just a bit, the screenshots with her full responses will be available in my sources. Although there are a few responses why Gilles de Rye was framed, I was wondering if you think people didn't stick up for him because they were too scared of the power that officials had. I know that after he was dead in the 1440s, people did make some attempts to clear his name, but why do you think no one stuck up for him sooner? She says, almost entirely because he was charged with heresy. Anybody who stood up for a heretic was likely to be seen as a fellow heretic and possibly prosecuted. Hence, no lawyer would defend an alleged heretic in court. The only person who could have intervened effectively with Charles VII, he was the Duke of Brittany's suzerain, but he didn't have a good record for loyalty after all. Two interesting things happened around 1440. The king founded a royal army, so he was no longer reliant on those rackety noblemen who had previously raised and paid their own private armies. Gilles had served his purpose. 
Secondly, there had been an uprising of some of those nobles who wanted to depose Charles VII and put his son, the Dauphin Louis, in his place as a puppet monarch. Gilles probably played no part in that, but note that visit the Dauphin made him in late 1439. It's highly likely he was asked to join in. The king wanted to suppress the rebels. It would do no harm at all if one of the more conspicuous barons was put on trial and executed. It illustrated that even a great lord like Gilles didn't have impunity. The only reason that in early 1443, Charles did a U-turn and asserted that Gilles had been wrongly accused and mistreated in prison was that he realized he now owed his throne to two preeminent commanders who had been executed for heresy, which looked as if he had risen to power through black magic. Question two. In the case of Elizabeth Bathory, who many was seen as framed as a serial killer, there's been a question of witnesses having ideas about her implanted into their head through heresy. What I found interesting about Gilles de Rye is that his being a serial killer of children was seemingly used as a way for parents to explain why their kids were missing. How much of the testimony in court do you think was actually desperate parents wanting to find someone to blame or citizens just regurgitating what they heard? She responds, Disclaimer, I know almost nothing about Bathory. I read a book about her when I was a teenager, but I don't think it was a terribly accurate book. I don't think people use Jill Deray as an explanation for children going missing because A, there were much fewer parents testifying in court than most people realize, and B, there were so many reasons why a child might go missing at that time. This is a quote from The Black Baron by Tennille Dix, highly overwrought prose, but not inaccurate. In the year 1420, conflict and desolation reigned. War had dwelt in France for a full century and its rigors were increasing. Armed bands of soldiers paraded up and down, burning villages and scattering the flocks. Private nobles held the roads, seizing at will whoever passed their castles. A famine of alarming proportions threatened starvation, while in the cities, plagues and pestilences raged. In the country, entire districts were depopulated, deserted by the starved and frightened peasants who had thrown away their tools and leaving fields untilled and villages in smoking ruins, had fled to the woods and lived there like wolves. There was supposedly a public rumor about Gilles de Rye, but I don't take that very seriously. As I mentioned in my answer to question one, we know exactly who was spreading dirt and who was paying them. In fact, statements and indeed confessions at this period should not be seen as spontaneous utterances. They were written down by a notary who assented to either verbally or by the person's signature or mark. Three, how easy would it have been to find physical evidence? The entire court case depended on testimony alone, but there was no physical evidence. But back in the day, of course, there wasn't DNA. Do you think it would have been easy to find physical evidence back in those days if it existed? Or if there even is a possibility that it was hidden before trial, why or why not? She responds, there should have been evidence of some kind. Gildarat was arrested in a surprise move and surrendered at once with no time taken to hide anything. If he was committing crimes at the rate he was accused of, there should have been something, bloodstains, a body, charred bones. Some of those severed heads were told he kept for at least three days. He was meant to have a hook in his bedchamber for hanging children from. But all that was found was suspicious ashes in a hearth. As you say, no DNA and ashes are exactly what you would expect to find in a hearth and a bloody child's shirt. And they weren't found in the castle, but in a small house where Prelati and Blanchett lived. And there's no record that Jill's ever visited that house. I want to thank you so much, Juby, for answering our questions. I really do appreciate you taking the time to just give a little bit of extra insight into this case. And thank you to all of you for listening and tuning in to today's episode. That is where I'll be ending today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you learned something new today. And if you do, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the recent episodes. I appreciate you taking some of your time to spend it here with me today, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.